Juggling motherhood and modern day life can be stressful and relentless, but it doesn't need to be this way. The Joy of Being podcast is the answer to maternal mental health, bringing sustainable relief and calm to hardworking mums everywhere so that you your family and work can thrive. My name is Marina Pearson and I'm your host, transformational coach and mum who loves to interview business owners, transformational professionals and creatives to have insightful conversations about what it takes to really live a life that is thriving, fulfilling and full of joy. And as the summer holidays have finally sprung upon us, I've decided to dedicate the following weeks to picking the most popular shows to create the Stay Safe summer series to help those of you who find this time of year a bit hellish to give you your sanity back and if you're feeling like you're going nuts and are thinking i just need a fucking break and want a quick sustainable fix you're in luck as i'm gifting an instant mum relief accelerator call worth 500 pounds to 25 lucky hard-working mums who want some instant relief from the madness if that is you go to bit.ly slash instant mum relief that's bit.ly slash instant mum relief where you can book your call. You can also find the link in the show notes. So on today's show, I have the beautiful Christine Armstrong. She's a best-selling author of the book, Mother of All Jobs, How to Have a Career, Children and Stay Sane-ish. And she's also appeared on The Telegraph, the BBC, The Management Today, Red and The Sunday Times. And what I loved about our conversation is we talked about what's possible in terms of being a working mum and actually remaining sane. She runs workshops and talks to talk about how it's possible to do both in a way that doesn't completely fry your brain. And as of course, this is the Stay Sane series, I thought it would be great to pop this one in here, as well as the fact that it's been one of our most downloaded episodes so far. So if you are feeling quite fried because of the summer holidays and you wish that you could find a way to do your work and stay kind of sanish, then this is going to be a great episode for you. Enjoy. So welcome everyone. And today I've got the beautiful Christine Armstrong. Please introduce yourself. So hello, my name is Christine Armstrong. I am the author of The Mother of All Jobs. Um, and I live in London and I have three small children. And most of the time I spend uh, writing about working and parenting, uh, speaking about it, or facilitating events, mostly on this subject, but on other subjects as well. Wonderful. So my love, what had you write the book? What was going on for you when you're like, yeah, well, I'm going to write a book about mums and parenting. That sounds like a, you know, that's work and parenting. That sounds like a great idea. So yeah, what, what, what was that spark? So, I mean, the book was seven years in the making. So I had a really lovely job for an ad agency and I flew all over the world and I published reports, insight reports into exciting things. And I, I, you know, it was a really lovely life. I mean, it was stressful and I worked really hard. And at the time, I probably would have told you it was quite hard. But looking back, it was pretty idyllic. And then I got pregnant and had a baby and essentially discovered very quickly that within the team I was in, there really wasn't a place for me with a baby. There was a change in leadership. I was not welcomed back with open arms. Um, And in a bit of a panic, I took a new job at a market research agency. Um, Because it was panicked, I didn't choose very well. And I ended up in an environment with a very macho culture that I didn't enjoy. Um, Having been the sort of very... um, 
in the world sort of job before where I'd traveled a lot and met a lot of people and spoke at conferences and been to events, suddenly I was very constrained and I was in one place, one office with a team all the time. We very, there wasn't much external um, platform or communication apart from some clients. Most of that was on the phone. And I had a small baby and the hours were really long. It was a really heavy hours culture. And uh, the graduates used to talk about the second day. So from six o'clock onwards was the second day. And that was really when the Americans came online and cranked up. And most of the graduates would eat in the office and get a taxi home at 10, 11 o'clock at night. And so if I left at like six, basically I was working half a day. And so they would make jokes about me being part time. And so I just ended up in this very dark place where I was really disconnected from my daughter um, and not enjoying my job at all and, um, you know, feeling like a failure, feeling like I'd given up a job I was really good at and was now doing a job that I was really incompetent at and I was really, really tired as well. So it it wasn't great. Um, So I really, in that dark space, thought quite hard about what I should do and the solution that I came up with remarkably was to have another baby. (laughs) (laughs) I know that is ridiculous, but that is genuinely what I thought would help. That makes loads of sense. Yay! Well, then I could go on maternity leave and I could escape this place. It was just like, it was a fight or flight. It was like, how do I get out of here um, in a credible way? So I did that. I got pregnant and I went on maternity leave and it was lovely. And then I went back. I don't know why I went back, but I went back and obviously it was still the same. So I was like, right, shit, I need a better idea because I can't just keep getting pregnant to keep getting out of this place. So I decided to go and interview um, what we called Power Mums, but it was for Management Today magazine, which I'd written for before. And it was really to go and interview people who had big jobs and small children and just it was totally and utterly selfish, this project. Again, it was no altruism. I cannot pretend otherwise. I just needed their answers. I had no clue what I was doing. I was like, these women know. They know the answers and they're going to tell me. And then I'm going to know the answers. And so writing them up was just an excuse to go and see these women. Right? I'll give you some publicity. It's fine, fine. And um, the editor at the time was like, yeah, go right on ahead. Do whatever you want. So, so I did it. I met these amazing women, really smart, really accomplished, and they would tell me about their lives. And then I would see them a few weeks, a few months later, maybe at a party, a drink thing, maybe they'd invite me to something at their office or whatever. And very often, not always, but very often a different story would come out. And I came to understand that it was really, really tough on these women, that although uh, publicly, they were giving a story that if you work hard and you know if you are well organised and you have great childcare, it can work. Actually, a lot of them were under really, really serious time pressure. And these were the privileged women. These were the women who'd leaned in. These were women on great salaries with very high status jobs on the whole. So I was kind of like, think, 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 think. If these guys, if these the leaners inners by definition are really really drowning in this, then how does it work for everyone else? How does it work if you're on an average income or an average salary? And that was what really led to the book was my fury that the narrative on this subject is being defined by uber successful women who can afford all the childcare in the world, but who can't actually tell you the truth even then about how hard it is because 
they can't let down their employer or let down their personal brand or insult their husband or talk about their kids' problems. And I understand all of that, but it means we've got this totally false narrative on, on this subject. Yeah, what really struck me uh, with your article, I think it was in the Times, was it in the, the Times, the Sunday Telegraph? Sometimes. Yeah, the Sunday Times was how we can't have it all, and uh, and I really resonated with that message because we're so told. Yeah, well, you can have it all. Well, not really. Uh, <laughs> not when you're exhausted. Like your vitality is completely gone. And so I, I love the fact that you got curious about that because here was on one level um, this this is what we're saying, but actually it's not what we're experiencing, and so. What have you found? Like, because uh, I know that we got before recording this, we were talking about the shame that exists. But the irony with shame, yeah, I guess the irony with shame is is that if you don't talk about it, the shame still car- carries on; it lingers. I think the the unintended consequence, and I do understand that it's unintended, but the unintended consequence of telling families that this is perfectly doable that you can move from a model where we have one, you know, an expectation of one male breadwinner who's at nine to five um, and maybe, you know, mom in a, maybe in an admin job or a small job around the house, but basically running the home and the family. We can take that model and then we can add in mom working at the same level as dad. And then we can put always on on top of that. And it's going to be fine. You're still going to be fine. And, and if you just work hard enough and you're organized, you'll be okay. I think that that is an unintended but extremely damaging message because I meet families and interview families all of the time who feel a crippling sense of failure. Mm. They are sat in their own kitchens and whether they're single parents or in couples, um, they are looking at each other going, why? Or they're looking at whoever they talk to, you know, maybe the mirror on their own. Why can't I make this work? The narrative is I'm supposed to be able to make this work and it doesn't. And so what am I doing wrong? Why have I failed? And I think in small private conversations, we're very honest about this. So in parallel with those Management Today interviews, I was going out with my friends. It wasn't a glamorous time in my life, mostly to baby swimming or baby yoga or baby music. But, you know, and and we were looking at each other going, shit, this doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? What's wrong with us? You know, why are we so incompetent? Why are we, you know, not able to do this? And we were people who were quite career orientated and who had always felt previously that we could make shit work if we tried hard enough. And suddenly we found that we couldn't and we became frustrated and depressed. We felt failures we felt ashamed of that failure and I think that's very constraining and damaging isn't it interesting though and I wonder isn't it interesting that as women we go straight to what's wrong with me as opposed to questioning the the narrative that's out there um, I wonder if that would be the same for men. <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly comment um, but I do think that we have a sort of media I don't know. It's sort of a media norm of holding up shiny examples of people who've made it, the ones that made it through. And I, I think it's well intended. I think, you know, well, you know, it'll be inspiring. And I think that when I, you know, after the Sunday Times piece, I got over a thousand messages in the next 48 hours. Wow. And a lot of them were from women saying, oh my God, thank God you said it. And it's not just me. And that was the bulk of them. But there was also a group of messages from women saying, I'm the woman that lies. I'm the woman on that panel. I'm the woman at that conference giving the speech saying, I've got three kids, four kids, whatever my profile is. And I'm the CEO or I'm the board member. 
And, um, and you can do it too. And I'm lying. I know that I'm lying. And so obviously I went to see all of those people. Um, straight, they'll straight back. <laughs> I'll be in your office tomorrow. Let's Turn talk. you off? Not allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tell you, I was all over them. I'm like, right, you have to talk to me. And they were all willing to talk to me. I mean, they had emailed me. Um, so, you know, it was fine. And I'd go and see them and they would tell me the whole thing, which is like, you know, how unsupportive their culture was, the battles they'd had, how their partners often didn't get it. Um, and the sacrifices they felt that they were making in terms of time with their children, how socially isolated they felt, but none of them would say that on the record. What was that thing? Like to me, what was stopping them? This, this sense of failure, this if I share that, that's going to mean what exactly? So as one of them put it, she said, you know, what is it that you want me to say, Christine? Do you want me to say on the record that I'm failing as a mother? Or do you want me to say that I'm failing at work? Which, is it, which of those is it that you think serves me? I'm like, yeah, fair point, right? I am not unsympathetic at all to the idea that it is very, very difficult to write an article or go on a platform or on a stage and say, do you know what? I have made it, but it, I've made it at serious personal cost. And it might have been a cost to my relationship with my partner. Um, it may have been at a cost to my relationship with my children. It may be at a cost to my own mental health. Um, but there has been a cost. And that's a really, really difficult thing to say. And it's a really difficult thing to say if you're still in that job and you're hoping to be employed tomorrow. And you're still in that relationship that you'd quite like to be in tomorrow. And your kids are going to read it and hear it. It's, re- it's a really tough gig. So what's the answer? Well, the way that I've gone around it in my book is to tell people's um, stories in a way that they're not identifiable, as you know. Um, And even then, what's really interesting is that, you know, I've made up, you know, these very generic names, as you know, and kind of uh, made their industry sector as generic and their location as generic as possible. And still, when those women read those stories, they call me and say, you know, when I was doing the drafts and I would, you know, make sure that I'd got everything right and that it reflected their story, they would call and say, well, can you take out the bit about me stopping drinking? Because then I think people might recognize me. But like, well, you've got a different name. <laughs> you know, why would they recognize you? So there is this absolute fear and horror of being found out. So I don't think that me going out and asking people to kind of stand up in a me too way and say, I'm finding this really hard publicly is necessarily going to work. It's not going to work in corporate session, in this corporate way. What I do think seems to be really resonating is when I write pieces like the Sunday Times or the book or other things that I've written where I say, look, the system wasn't designed to work this way. We have to be really honest about that. Um, and say that it's not working so that we can change it. And the problem is that if we keep having this super successful narrative where the system is fine, it's just you that's the, the screw up because you can't make it work, then we never change the system, right? So we have to fundamentally say this whole dual income household with always on combined with caring responsibilities, whether that's elderly parents or children, particularly children with additional needs, I mean, all sorts of complexities within that, it doesn't fundamentally work. And generally, on the whole, not exclusively, it is women who are paying the price for that. Yeah, it was interesting. I interviewed a lady called Dr. Laura Markham, who works with parents and, and, and she's written a book and created a course called Calm Parents, Happy Kids. And we talked about this very thing where I said, I don't think it's set up these days for us to have a family and work. Because to me, it's like the support system in the olden days was 
it takes a village to bring up a child. Where the crap, where the fuck is the village? I don't see it. Um, yeah. Especially now where we've been, you know, how many of us are actually working in the village that we grew up in? No, and this is fundamentally the issue is if you've moved, say, you know, you, you had an education, maybe you went to college, maybe you didn't, but then you moved somewhere to work and you set up your family unit in that place. Probably the actual location of your work is somewhere away from your neighborhood or your suburb if you're in a professional job. Okay. And that's kind of what we're focusing on at the moment. So you're traveling in and out suddenly you have a baby and for the first time in your life you are home alone in a suburb that you don't actually know very well you may not know your neighbors you don't know the person that runs the shop at the end of the road you don't, you know, I remember my first maternity leave going wow the postman comes every day I mean obviously I knew that right I'm not a total idiot I realized the postman's still but it wasn't part of my world I never thought about it I just remember kind of being slightly obsessed with this guy who obviously all the rest of my neighbors who are more home-based knew perfectly well and it's a whole new community and new world that you've got to immerse yourself in um, and that's very alienating and very difficult and, and part of the challenge but then as you say as you go through your parenting journey if you don't have your mum or his mum or a sister or an aunt or whatever to support you it's unbelievably isolating and, and so many people are up against that yeah I mean I look back at the decisions I made my son was born in Bali then we moved back after six after 14 months of living there we came back to the UK we lived in London for six months and then we came to Spain so during that time when it was the most difficult in that first year we moved uh, from Bali to yeah twice yeah it's really hard every time it was new and my ex would travel so basically it was me yeah. And I, I just kind of looking back, I'm like, what the, what the hell was I thinking? Like, that was just crazy. Because like, the support I'd had in Bali was this group of really lovely women. And that was all good for me at the time because we all had kids at the same time. So we talked about it. But then when I moved away, it was like starting again. And then I moved here and it was like totally starting again. Um, yeah. yeah, so... Um, I think that thing is a really important point in that. So my objective when I wrote the book was to kind of go through the different stages of child uh, having children uh, from before you have them to the baby years and the toddler years and then kind of interview people and go, what would they do differently? What did they learn? So that if you would, so if you hopefully if you read the book, you kind of go, do you know what? You need a stable base of mates because otherwise it's just you and your baby in a white walled house going, looking at each other and going, what the hell are we going to do next? Like, what are we here for? And my mother, who's a biologist, would say, we were never supposed to raise our children this way in this one on one really intense isolated way you know there would have been dozens of children we would have grown up with children around us we would be good at dealing with children we would know about their needs and we would have mothers and aunts and sisters and uncles and fathers who would help us and we don't have that and we make it incredibly hard for ourselves this is so true I mean I don't have my mum passed away my sisters are all over the place and so yeah and none of my friends at the time were having any babies back in the UK anyway so it it was extremely isolating. Um, but then, you know, I guess what has been, aside from, you know, we've discovered that there is something that ran shame, not wanting to talk about it and it being a bit of a taboo subject. Um, aside from that, what else have you seen in terms of learnings? Like what, what, like the top three, if you'd known that then, what would you do differently? 
So I think fundamentally, um, it's a realization that work will eat whatever time you make available to it. So, and if you've been used to working as, I mean, most of us have been trained like Pavlov's dogs, you know, you send me an email and I'm on it. I'm there. I'm the most efficient. I'm the most well-organized. I'm on it. I'm not going to leave it for three days lurking in the bottom of my inbox. Like I'm efficient. I'm well-organized. This is who I am. This is my core identity. Um, I think the transition from that as your core identity uh, to being a mother as your, at least part of your identity, if not ever perhaps your core identity, is a huge transition. And I think having some awareness of that transition and the fact that it is something that's going to happen would have helped me enormously. And I think it would have helped very specifically me to start experimenting, ideally even before I had kids, with putting boundaries around work. What happens if I don't respond to messages after six? What happens if I turn my machines off for the weekend? Um, go and hang out in some mountains. What are the impacts of these things? Do they have consequences or not? How can I manage this in a less 24-7 kind of a way? Because I think otherwise, what I try to do and what many of the women that I interview try to do is they try to continue after they've had a child in the way that they worked before and they find that it doesn't work. So you're going to have to adjust. So that's one thing. The second thing is to see your household as a whole unit and not just you versus the kid or you and your partner is to see it as one whole if you're in a partnership, but equally if you have siblings. And I think that when you you sort of you go into it with this sort of quite individualist like so I've met someone and I've decided to have a baby if, if that's the way you've done it, I'm not making assumptions for everyone but assuming that's the way you became a parent you've had this baby and then you kind of both focus all your attention on this baby and then maybe you have another maybe you don't maybe you have another or another after that I think there's something around seeing the whole family as a unit which is very important particularly for mothers because sometimes when I interview families the mothers have become the sole carer and all, it's sort of taking all of the family's load on themselves and that sort of it means that it's always her stepping back but if you see it as a whole unit then you go okay as parents how do we balance this between them if you need to travel what does that mean I need to do what what's the quid pro quo how do we balance this so that we can do this together in a way that supports all of our needs including the parents and the children and I think that comes into real force if you have a second sibling because suddenly if you've been used to being quite tolerant of getting up at three in the morning to watch Paw Patrol, because that's just what's going on in your house right now. God knows we've all had those moments. When you have a second sibling in that, you go, shit, I can't have the whole house up at three in the morning, right? This doesn't function anymore. So we suddenly need to have boundaries and we need to deal with shit because we can't all be doing this. So then, then I think that brings it to me. So that's two things. So seeing it as one household and that applies later as well, you know, I interview people who put all of their kids into different schools and were like, well, I was tearing my hair out every day. You know, by 9.15, I was in a cold sweat and enraged and I've got the wrong shoes and the wrong key kit and everything had gone wrong. And you're like, yeah, we need to see this as one unit. Everybody's got to be okay. And then the third thing is a, a financial base. The higher you set your financial base, the harder this is going to be, right? The fewer choices you're going to have. So if you want to have the fancy house with the big garden and the nice car because you've got a baby and it needs to be a Volvo or a BMW or something um, because you can't drive that shitty banger that you've had for years um, and, you know, families have houses and whether you rent it or you buy it or whatever, whatever costs you put into that system, you have to bear and that is such a big regret that people have later. They're like, I would love to work three days or four days, but look at, look at our cost base. I can't do it. And so I say, look, 
minimize your cost base as much as you can be a really really bad capitalist so that you have choices and there may be periods where you're really happy to work full pelt and there may be periods where you're like actually I just need to be at home for a while or I need to be at home more and you just want to be able to make those changes because the most miserable parents are the ones that can't change their patterns that are stuck and and feel trapped. What I heard in that was that it's really important to distinguish the roles that each person is playing a bit a bit like in a team or in a job where basically what's your role what's your job remit what's my job remit are we are we kind of doing it okay because I guess yesterday I had a conversation with a guest talking about the female breadwinner and talking about this very thing which is you can be the female breadwinner but if you're not having the conversation with your partner you might not find out that that there are resentments being built up because he wants to be and 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 endure the one that do it doing it. So it's really important to have that communication. But the other thing which I heard in what you were saying around the finances is to really understand where you are. I work with mums in this regard and a lot of them have no idea or understanding where they are financially. Money goes out, money comes in, (laughs) money goes out, money comes in, but they don't know where the money is going. As long as it just pays the bills, we're good. And so it, it creates this cycle of kind of enough um, and maybe not enough, but, but, but it's okay because the bills. And so it, it's this, but do you know where you are? And once again, what I found is that the number one reason why they don't want to look is because of the shame and the fear that mm-hmm. that conjures up. So there is this underlying piece here, which is mm-hmm. beating yourself up about the situation and thinking you're the failure once again. I think there's something here, though, about taking control. So when um, I finally walked out of my hopeless job that I hated, um, we still needed full-time childcare because my husband had set up a business that made no money. So I was that breadwinner, and then I walked out of my job. So we really had no money. We like had two, basically, one working parent with this unsuccessful business at that point, uh, plus me looking for jobs and needing childcare. So it was an absolute disaster. And what was astonishing about that period was we were like, right, we have to strip out every single cost, right? Mm. What could we take out of the system? And it was astonishing. And, I, you know, maybe this is a privileged thing to say. Obviously, there'll be people listening going, no, I've already done that and there's nowhere to go. But with us, when we actually analysed what we were spending on food, on electrics, um, on entertainment and media, it was amazing how much we could reduce our costs without feeling a massive consequence by some really sensible housekeeping advice that your mother would have given you around meal planning and being more efficient. (laughs) And, and, you know, we were just very, like, in the wheel, just get it done, get it done, pay the bills, pay the bills, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And when you stop and go, right, what do we actually need here? You know, you may be surprised that there is more scope to make choices than you thought possible. Right. And so when I've done this exercise with them, what's been amazing is they're like, oh, my God, I have money to save. Yes, you do, probably. You may not. I mean, there'll be people listening here who are on minimum wage who are going, fuck off, you bitch. There is nothing to save. And I get that. That is absolutely fair game. But I think if you, I think there will also be people listening to this who go, actually, if I really looked at, I mean, you know, at one point we, between us, realized that we had accidentally signed up to three different music systems. So, you know, Audible and not Audible, but I can't remember what they're all called. But, you know, by accident, I'd signed up to an Amazon one and he had signed up to something else at Spotify or whatever. And like, this is ridiculous, right? And it's just just being ruthless about that stuff mm-hmm. and cutting everything out makes such a difference. Yeah. And, you know, it's just 
becoming conscious of what there is and where you are. That's all. It's not even like, oh, maybe you will, maybe you will find the money or not, but it's more like, have you taken stock? And I think it's so easy in life just to keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. And then, and and then go, hang on a second. What the fuck am I doing? Well, I think people are afraid they'll find something bad. And I think, yeah. I think what I might say is what we found and what other people I've spoken to have been forced to do this. So what I find is that very often I'll interview people who say, I couldn't give up work, couldn't possibly afford it. Then something happens. Maybe their relationship falters. Uh, maybe one of their kids has some particular problems and suddenly they are stepping out of work and they do make it work. And when you interview those people, what they say is like a lot of the things that I thought we really needed when actually when it was in the context of something big going on in life turned out to be not very important at all. Yeah. Yeah. But you can get to that decision earlier if you just choose to look at it. Right. Which is why I guess we're having this conversation. The other thing that, that kind of struck me when you were talking was, so yes, as a team, but what if you're on your own? So single mothering, being a part-time single mother, I know how full on it can be. And so I'm curious about that. I mean, I, th- I know that in your chapters of the book, you talked about this too, but anyone that's listening in and go, well, hell, hang on. Yeah, I'm on my own here, guys. I'm on my own here, guys. I know. Uh, so I talked to a lot of single parents, both mums and dads. And what I found, what I re- sort of put in the book is one of the things about single parenting, whether you chose to be a solo mum, whether you've been widowed or whether your relationship has broken up, uh, whatever the reasons are, um, it forces you to confront where your life is and make decisions. So I always find that when I interview mm. single parents, they are, they are very, very thoughtful about decisions they've made because they've been through some sort of process that kind of went right. I, it's only me, so there is nowhere else to go with this. So what are the decisions I'm going to have to make to make this work? And I think that the hardest thing that they come up against is how do you combine working with the current childcare arrangements that we have um, to support your household and also care for your kids? And it's a bloody nightmare. And that's why we need to talk about this. I interviewed a mum last week, a single mum, and I was like, look, what do you do for childcare? She just laughed down the phone. She said, I can't afford childcare. What are you talking about? You know, I work at night. I'm a freelancer. I work at night because that is the only way that I can support my kids and also pay the bills, right? So I think we have to be really hyper aware of how this impacts on on families with a single parent because it doesn't work for dual income families so it really really doesn't work for single income family unless they are so well off that they can afford uh, a single parent can afford the childcare that they need but even then it has big consequences in terms of the amount of time that they can spend with their children um, and so I you know I think when you look at what Scandinavian countries have done in terms of shorter working days slightly longer school days and being able to match those things I think we have a lot to learn and one woman got in touch with me after one of my pieces and said uh, do you know in World War Two, when we needed women to work in factories overnight the government changed the length of the school day to match the factory day and there was no debate there was no consultation they just did it and I thought, well, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because we're not even having that conversation now. And yet we expect mostly both, fam- both parents, if there are two parents, or, and we expect single moms to work. And how are they supposed to do that? We don't answer that question. We just leave it as an individual pro- problem for every household in the country. Because then what, what I'm hearing you say, what happens is, is it's the, as we do, we take on the responsibility of the system's problem. So it's almost like, well, now I've just got to suck it up and actually go and do something about this as opposed to going, well, actually, hang on a second. Am I actually responsible for the way that the system's actually set up? 
No. Of course you're not. And also then you sort of found that you're being held accountable. So if you need government support, then there's shame in that. And that's some sort of a failure. And then if your pension isn't equal to the men in your life, well, there's a bloody surprise, isn't it? You know, because you've taken all this time out to raise kids and, and you haven't made the pension contributions that people are in the Sunday papers advising you would be a really smart idea. You know, and you're like, give me a fucking break. What is it you want from me? And, you know, a lot of single parents that I interview, I would say probably the majority, to say I really want to work but I have you know in the kind of work that I was doing before I had kids but I have absolutely no idea how to make that possible like how would I do that how would I turn up somewhere you know and and leave the house an hour and a half before school starts in order to go and do a full day and then get home an hour an hour two hours after school I just really don't know how to make that work then they go and take flexible jobs and then they do a three-day week, say, or a four-day week or whatever. They work school hours, whatever they can manage. And then they find that they don't get promoted. They don't get the pay rises. And that's why we end up with mothers of teenagers earning 30%, 30% less than their male and childless peers. Um, it's because of those decisions that they've been forced into making. Um, and and that, you know, that's fundamentally the problem, as well as the fact that when you take those flexible jobs, most often when I interview them, they say, well, of course, I get paid for three days, but actually I work five because it's not acceptable for me not to respond to incoming. So is there something around being able to talk about this more freely, more openly? Because, you know, when we do, it's almost like, okay, so let's just unpack the shame bit here. Let's actually get really clear on why it's okay not to like it's okay like it's okay for me to be in this place right now like it's okay for me to feel like this it's okay for me to feel the way I do um and there's no shame in it there's no failure in it like it is what it is right I think so I think we have to discuss this and I think we have to discuss it as a society and we have to include men in the conversation Mm -hmm. so I think the risk of this conversation is that it gets sidelined into a women's conversation about women and how they engage with the world I mean actually this is about how we work and we care And we've moved from, you know, the tiger who came from tea era where, you know, the caring was done by women to an idea that women and men both work, whatever their family unit. But we haven't figured out who exactly is supposed to do the caring. So who is supposed to pick up the kids from school? Who is supposed to sit over the recording classes and the homework and the football club and bring the kids home and make lunch and make dinner and clear up? Who is supposed to do that and when are they supposed to do it? I don't think we have a very clear answer for that. And I guess each family unit will have their own answer for that, won't they? I feel like every family unit is muddling through and doing the very best that they can. Um, you know and everybody's trying out different things to see and you know I always say you know I interview people all the time like maybe I've got a bigger whiteboard in my kitchen you know I think <laughs> we sort of all have this kind of feeling inside us that if we just tried harder maybe this would be okay but I guess what I'm trying to say is it's really really hard you might well find your way through you will survive it um, but it, it really doesn't need to be this hard and we could change quite simple structures to make it easier I was at um, a PR event recently discussing this issue and the Women's Equality Party representative said that their policy would be, for example, to have um, subsidised or free childcare, I think, from the end of maternity leave until school to enable women to work. And that in OECD, the OECD has reported that Nordic countries who do this have had a 10 to 20% increase in GDP because it enables women to be productive during that period. And somebody in the audience said, well, how would you pay for it? And she said, well, pension tax relief on the higher level is almost exclusive, you know, the vast majority of it goes towards men. So we would take away pension tax relief, which the Conservative government have talked about doing for other things. So it's not the most shocking policy in the world. 
And this man got up and he was enraged. She was like, why would you take that away? Those, pen- those pension pots benefit women. They're important to industry. I'm like, what is it, mate, that you don't understand about women being taxed at 100% of their salary for a couple of years until their children get to 33 hours. And that's if they're well enough paid in order to stay in the workforce. You know, if they can't afford the childcare, they get pushed out of the workforce, then they're not entitled to the 33 hours that we have in the UK. And so then they're essentially pushed out of work. What came to mind when you were talking was, what did you do to make it work? Well, (laughs) I kind of took the collective wisdom of the things that I had heard and learned. And I kind of... As you know from reading the book, I'm really sorry to tell you, so save your money if this isn't what you wanted to hear, but there are no magic silver bullets. So there is no like one thing I can tell you that's going to fix this. But the book is very much a mosaic of things like this helped this family and this worked here and this improved it and this was useful in this period. And so I kind of took all of those nuggets and went right. So it seems to me that people who have more control over their time and can make choices about how they spend their time seem to be happier. Um, And that seems to work for them. People with a low cost base seem to be happier and able to make more choices. So that's good too. Um, People who see things as a family unit, uh, people who don't run up bills. So it's kind of like, right, what does that mean for us? So I set up a consultancy um, five years ago. Um, I co-founded it. And it was basically a network of freelancers who were all quite experienced, who went and worked on projects individually or collectively and shared a sort of cost center in terms of a building and, and admin support. And that was fantastic. It was a really really good way to work there were no hours there was no holiday allocation you got paid for what you did you went and you did it and it was very transparent and that was great when the book came out um things went a bit bananas so I kind of stepped back from that because I wasn't able to give it the time um and so I'm figuring out what the next phase is going to look like but I think that kind of flexibility was hugely useful to us meanwhile Chris's business has grown but he has made choices about not scaling it in the way that I think the narrative around entrepreneurs mm. uh, drives you. So he runs a small travel business called Villas for Kids, which is sort of holiday homes for families with small children. And he's very much like, look, I don't need to run 3,000 villas. I'm really happy running a group of houses that I can manage that mean that I can also pick up, do the school run and be at home in the evenings. And he's made very active decisions about that, which I think as a unit, sort of look at family unit has made it easier for all of us. There's something in what you just said that really struck me, which was clarity. So the priority, what is the priority that I'm working from? And I know that priorities can change. So he was very clear from the outset is, is the priority for me is to be with my family. And so I'm going to make sure that everything else works around that. I think so, we both got there, but I wasn't there at the start. I think it took me quite a long time to realize that that identity I had of myself as a career professional was, was being replaced um, and, and, you know, the sort of Venn diagram overlapping with the mother and then actually the mother becoming perhaps the more dominant identity that I was willing to own. And, and that transition took me much longer than it did Chris, actually. I think Chris is, uh, was more aware earlier that he was going to redefine his life in a pretty significant way. I'm laughing because us go-getting women which we are kind of have the tendency to kind of carry on doing that right I remember when I was 25 26 and at the time I wasn't actually I didn't have any children but um, I, I identified with my work hugely in fact my I my my identity and my work were coupled 
very close. They were, they were together. So when I stopped working, I was working in a record label. Um, I used to work in the music industry and I was exports department as in like I traveled around the world and had an amazing time and it was all magical. And then I went to New York um, to do a master's in music business. And I went from having this really extraordinary experience of job and, and, and challenge to being an intern. And I cannot tell you the uncoupling of who I am, as opposed to what my role is, was massive for me. It was a massive journey because I thought I was the role I was in. And so there was this massive identity piece that had to shift because I realized I'm not my role. I have roles I play, but I am a multifaceted being and I'm not the results I get. So it was this sudden realization that I'm not the job and that was so freeing. I mean, have you found that like that, that kind of going, oh, actually, I'm not the job. I'm actually, I do the job. But. I think that is freeing and it's definitely a trap before you get there. I mean, when I went to this job that I didn't enjoy, um, I, a few weeks in, they said, oh, we need you to go to Austin, Texas to um, see, see a client. And essentially, it was 18 hours travel each way for about a two or three hour meeting. And I was still breastfeeding. And I was so like, I'm a career professional. I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. I called my mum on the way to the airport. She's like, what the hell are you doing? Turn the car around, go home. You cannot be traveling to Austin, Texas. You're going to get mastitis. You're going to be hospitalized. It's a disaster. It's like, mum, you are making such a big fuss. Why are you making a fuss? It's fine. I've got a breast pump. Obviously, the breast pump broke. Obviously, nothing worked. Obviously, I was up at two o'clock in the morning, sobbing my heart out in a shower as I pumped milk down the drain. And But it was like, I look back on that and go, what the hell was I doing? What was wrong with me that I couldn't say, do you know what? I just started this job. I'll do it by video conference. I've still got a baby. Why would that have been so hard to say? Why couldn't I do that? And I just didn't have somehow the, the words or the um, openness or the understanding of the world to say, you know, what's really important and what, what's the right decision to make here? I laugh because I can res- totally resonate with that story. <laughs> I was in Lanzarote and I was on retreat, a really beautiful retreat, actually. And I was in a really beautiful feeling. And my son was there and my, you know, my husband was there at the time and having a wonderful time. And then I get an email, I get an email from this journalist I'd met years before saying, do you want to come on ITV this morning? And I'm thinking, yeah, when? Tomorrow, right? So I was like, uh, no, I'm in Lanzarote. And then I had this thought of, why not? They can pay. I can go. I can come back. It's all good. But as, as I realized, as I was on the, on the plane, squeezing the milk out of my breast in the, in the toilet, going, oh, I, didn't, I didn't ring my best pump. Oh, my God. <laughs> At least I remembered mine. Mine just didn't work. I didn't bring it because I didn't think I'd need it. You know, I didn't think I'd need it going to Lanzarote because I was having my baby with me. So it was like, it was the most unglamorous experience ever. And I was so tired. I have recordings of this interview that I did for them. I was like... Oh my God, I look like a fucking zombie. Yeah. You can't (laughs) see it though, can you? When you're in it, you're not even aware of it. No. This woman told me about a meeting that really overran and it just ran on and her tits were like cannons. She was just like hurting so much. Basically, she got, she just ran to the lady's toilet. She ripped off her top and her bra and both of her nipples were just squirting them all over the mirrors. She was just like, I just had to get it off. I couldn't even get myself in a cubicle and I'm just hosing the whole bathroom and corporate bathroom. How do you think I'm who I am? What the fuck? 
fuck is going on? Oh, that's so funny. There was, was it, I, I can't remember, there was another story about having poo, like just shit on your shirt. <laughs> you yeah. Notice yeah. you walk around, yeah, you walk around, the, walk around the work and then you're like, somebody smells shit. And then you're like, it's <laughs> <laughs> me. Excellent. It was great. Who bloody told me? (laughs) But isn't laughter? I mean, seriously, if I think maybe somehow there's a sense of not taking this too seriously either. I mean, here you and I can sit here in hindsight, just having a bit of a laugh about how crazy it was. But anybody that is listening and is going through this right now, I don't want to be little your experience. But also there's there's an opportunity here to see the ridiculousness in it too. I think you have to. And I think honestly that when women get together, whether it's at coffee mornings or, you know, drinks or, you know, after baby yoga, then this is what they do, right? They talk about it and they roar laughing and that's how we all get through it. And that's why I say like, if you don't take anything else from the book, at least have a bunch of mates. Like wherever you are in the world, at least have one friend who you can just roar laughing with. Because, you know, when there's somebody that you connect to that goes, yeah, this is crazy and none of this works and I haven't slept for two weeks and I absolutely hate my husband and I hate my kids and I, you know, I don't know what to do with myself. If somebody makes you laugh, then, you know, you can get through another day and it'll be all right and you will come out the other side. And, and the people that scare me, the people who are really socially isolated, who go back to work so quickly, um, that they don't make those connections that give them the support networks. And later on, I think that can really come back and bite you. You know, when you're running late on the train or you've forgotten the pack lunch, you know, you need to have a bit of a network that's like, can you just pick them up for me? You know, I'm stuck. Please help me. And the people who don't have that, I think it's really hard. And when you move, that's so different. I do write about that. But when you move house or move country or move town, you've got to work really hard to replicate those networks. And, and you know, that's, it, you almost have to take that as a job and say, right, the most important thing I'm going to do is find a support system. Yeah, and it takes time. It's not something that, you know, you do overnight. So that was that was my huge learning. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it until he's a little bit older. But, you know, I, I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. We traveled in a camper van when Leo was, had, was five weeks on the, yep. on, from, from Melbourne to Sydney. And uh, seriously, like I look back on that and people were like, what are you thinking? I'm like, oh, fine. It was still that sort of, I'm going to live my life the way I lived it before I had my child and it's going to be great. I interview so many people who do that and I have my own private joke. Whenever you go to like a boutique hotel, um, even, you know, going for coffee or whatever, there's always that couple there who've got one tiny baby and they both look absolutely broken and they're like eating their breakfast in silence as the baby screams the restaurant down and everyone else there is like, guys, we get one weekend away a year to avoid our kids. What is yours doing here? And they're like, you can just really see it's the first time and they're like we're just trying to live our lives we're trying to continue the patterns that we had before and it's not working and as as the parent who's kind of tried that and it failed you kind of want to go over and go guys right you've done it now can we just move on like can you get granny in next time or don't bother there is no joy in being in a hotel room with a small screaming baby no there isn't and i i attempted to do that quite a few times as well and it was like no this is the weekends away aren't the same (laughs) you don't get to read the paper you don't go and get fish and chips on the beach and get a little bit tipsy on the cider or something like none of it works anymore it's just you and your partner or or you on your own with this baby just going oh i just don't want to do myself and you just don't you still don't sleep and is there any surprise that that then mums turn to wine (laughs) 
Indeed. I know you did a programme on this recently and I listened to it. I think it is. And I think there is a a big meme around the use of wine and the use of alcohol to try and break that tension. And I think people are looking for, you know, anything. Um, I was laughing recently on a slightly different to the wine, but after my book came out, I kind of went to see my GP and I said, look, I think I've got menopause. And she said, really, what are your symptoms? I was like, well, I can't sleep. She was like, anything else? And I was like, no, that's it. She's like, I think you just can't sleep. So she was like, look, try nitol herbal. Obviously, in my uh, slightly tired state, I, d- I deleted the herbal bit and just tried the nitol. I looked like a dream. I've got to tell you, I slept like an absolute baby. It was fantastic. Anyway, I took it for about two weeks and I was like, okay, actually, I, I do, this has got to stop, right? I cannot be. <laughs> I'm a bit of an addict. So I was joking with my mates and we went to the pub and I was like, you know, I was like, Jesus, I really, I really like these girls. I'm going to throw them in the bin like that is enough. I'm going to try the herbal one. And a friend of mine went, oh, I take two and a half every night. Is that bad? (laughs) See, this is what happens. You know, like we look around us for like, you know, what what is it that helps us get through? And um, I think it's very easy to look for crutches rather than to think about how could you reframe your life? Like what would calm you down? Like what exercise could you do? And how could you take time out? And how could you escape your electronic? devices which of course are all the things that you really need to do rather than drinking a bottle of wine or and and or taking nitol or any other equivalent (laughs) it's easier (laughs) but it's easier isn't it in a way because it's there and you can just ask for it and you don't have to change your lifestyle which i think in a lot of ways can be can look really difficult especially when you've got stuff on your enough too much stuff on your plate anyway to then go oh my god i'd have to change that oh no i'll just i'll just just go go to this chemist <laughs> I know, and it is a dangerous cycle. And I think I think you said earlier about being conscious. I think, you know, I was at a bank the other day and I was doing a presentation about that was talking about the book and being interviewed about it. And somebody in the audience said, Oh, I take your point about your cost base, but can you tell me which bits of things you should spend money on? And she was clearly, you know, working in the banking sector, obviously had a good income. And I was kind of like, mm, why would not to be critical, but you know, don't ask me that, you know, you need to decide that. That's a really, that's a decision Like you need to go and look at your life and your, you know, connectedness into the world. And you need to make decisions about your priorities and what's important and take the time to do that. And, you know, if you're not sleeping, and there were quite a few questions, what do you do if you can't get through the day? What do you do if you, you know, if and like all these questions was kind of like, look, what I'm getting from these questions is that it's really not working the way it is. So I think stepping back and thinking, well, what can I change? What's possible is the conversation that you need to have yeah the asking the different question because i guess the the challenge is is if you're blaming yourself what you then don't see is is that actually because you spend all of that time doing that there's no room to question what can change yeah I think that's right. And you get into very black and white when you're stressed and tired, you get into very black and white decision. Either I give up my job completely or I just carry on as I am. So I'll just carry on as I am. Um, And there isn't kind of the nuance. Well, what if I move sectors? What if I change my hours? You know, what if I interact differently with my electronic devices? What if I put this boundary around? Like just trying different options to see what might improve things. What if I decided screw it, I'm going to go to a, I go to swim every lunchtime. Okay, I'll get really bad looks and that might be really stressful, but let's try it for two weeks and see whether I feel better, whether anybody actually even notices or not. Um, you know, whatever it is that might change the dynamics for you to play with that. And I see the people who aren't able to do that, who get so frozen in their past, 
patterns are very often the ones that end up breaking completely later. So they, they hold on and they hold on and like every sinew is like, I'm going to just keep going, keep buggering on, just keep paying the bills. And then when it comes, the storm, whatever it is, relationship, kids, I mean, you know, kids have, you know, everybody says teenage years, you know, prepare yourself. There's always surprises. There's always stuff that's happening. When they do get derailed, it can feel like everything gets blown off the table. Whereas actually some smaller adjustments as they went might have made it more possible to keep going, but in a different way. Well, thank you so much, Christine. Um, Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we hit the stop button? For anybody who's sort of going into this, I did interview this really lovely gay dance in New York and they told me that in order to adopt, that they had to uh, go through like therapy and interviews and had to write essays about how they were going to parent. And it included budgeting for childcare, who would take time off when one of the kids was sick and so on. And they told me a story and they were just like, the guy was just laughing and going, and do you know what? Like all of our heterosexual straight mates are just killing themselves, all arguing about who takes time off and who does this and who does the washing out. So we've got it all written out. Like we literally haven't thought about this at all because we know the decisions that we've made. We found the budgets and made it work. And so I think there's a really strong learning in there in terms of being mindful before you go into stuff, or even if you're in it now, stepping back and going, okay. Let's sit down. Let's figure out how this might work. Because I think that there's like this mis- misunderstanding that, oh, I'm a mother and, and I'm a dad and baby is natural and we know how to do this because um, it comes from the mother. And, and, and actually, that's not true. <laughs> well, it does come from the mother. We'll take that. But I think that the, I think otherwise we replicate stereotypes in our own mind of what that parenting looks like that we assume will match each other's, which probably don't match, and which we assume will match the modern world. And it definitely isn't going to match the modern world. And that's where the conflict happens. Yeah. So what I hear is communicate, talk, get clarity on what's your yeah, job, and, what's my job. Yeah, and I, don't assume that you as the mother have to run the ticker tape, as I call it, of mum constantly, where every list is in your head, you know, the ballet kit and the party and the ordering the cake and cancelling the haircut and booking the dentist and telling school that so-and-so is picking them up on Thursday. All of that doesn't have to be just in your head. You can communicate that, you can make lists, you can share that stuff. Yeah, I call it the mental mother load. <laughs> so... Yeah. Christine, if someone wants to get hands on their book, on your book, or wants to connect with you, how can they do that? So I am on Instagram and Twitter as C Armstrong LDN, as in London. Um, I have a website, which is christinearmstrong.com, which has got my email address. And the book is The Mother of All Jobs, How to Have Children and a Career and Stay Sane-ish. And it's available <laughs> everywhere else, I'm sure. Well, to everybody that's been listening, I hope you enjoyed this as much as uh, I did, certainly. And yeah, until the next time bye for now and there we have it another amazing episode of the joy of being to accompany you during this crazy time of year remember you're not on your own you can reach out and you're okay no matter what if you are tired of the insanity and the juggle that summer brings remember to get in touch for your free instant mum relief accelerator call worth 500 pounds at bit.ly slash instant mum relief that's bit.ly slash instant mum relief and book your call there so until next week's episode remember you are the joy you seek